LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. Leadership must be integrated. Leadership must be about integrity, about intersection, about wrestling faithful, faithfully with uh, things in our interior world. There's, there must be this integration between soul and role. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Vinoy, here with my guest co-host, Mike Kelsey. We had him on the podcast just a few episodes ago, and we decided we needed to invite him back to be a guest co-host. So, Mike, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. That could have been a really big mistake, but uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm hyped to be on here, man. We're excited to uh, talk to Rich Velotis, who's the author of The Deeply Formed Life, which I've read and highly recommend. And uh, he's the lead pastor at New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York City. Rich, what's up, man? Uh, so good to be with you guys. Uh, look forward to a good conversation. Well, Rich, you're up in uh, you're up in New York. Are you born and raised in New York or? Oh, through and through, man. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I, I lived 34 years in Brooklyn and the past seven years in Queens. So uh, I'm as I'm as New York as you're going to get. Well, that, that leads perfectly into my next question was, are you a Knicks fan or are you a Nets fan? Oh, man. Uh, this is very clear. I mean, any true New Yorker knows how to answer that question. Uh, we still consider the Nets part of New Jersey. So I'm from <laughs> Brooklyn. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm just not, wondering, I'm yeah. not from the new Brooklyn. Uh, uh, the, yeah, the new Brooklyn. There's the new Brooklyn. <laughs> that's not that's not Brooklyn. That, 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 I'm yeah. from real Brooklyn, yeah. and uh, the real Brooklyn folks are all Knicks fans. There you go. Well, I'm randomly. All my friends are like, "Why are you a Knicks fan?" I love the Knicks, so we can suffer together. We can probably have a whole podcast about that. <laughs> love it. Uh, well, man, before we hop into the questions here, I know the time we're recording this, it's literally been a year uh, since the pandemic kind of hit. Uh, kind of the way I think of it is actually when the NBA shut down last year. Yeah. It's kind of when I measure it by. So what is what does the past year look like for you? I know New York was kind of the hub of the pandemic, uh, unfortunately, at the very beginning. So what does the past year look like for you? Oh, uh, lots of disorientation, lots of suffering, lots of pain, lots of, um, you know, uh, my uh, home is um, a mile and a half from Elmhurst Hospital, which was, uh, you know, at the height of the pandemic in New York in April, May, June. It, it was the epicenter of the pandemic in the United States. Uh, and so being a mile and a half from that hospital, I was hearing the sirens of the ambulance uh, mm. repeatedly throughout the course of not just a day for, for weeks. And, um, know of a number of people who have died of COVID, uh, a number of people who have contracted it as well. So on one level, very, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, lamenting, disorienting, um, uh, very painful. And at the same time, yes, there's glimmers of, of hope and creativity that we've had to adjust to in a leadership capacity. Uh, but it's been a very difficult year for sure. Hmm. Well, man, I, I know that you guys are doing great work pastoring up in New York in the midst of that. So thankful for, for all that you guys are doing up there. Well, let's go ahead and hop in here. I uh, would love to hear kind of the behind the scenes stories of how the Lord has worked to be where you are today. So we'll start out with this one. Can you just walk us through a quick 
overview of the different leadership roles that you've been in over the years that have led you to where you are today? Yeah. You know, I became a Christian at 19 years of age. And when I became a Christian, there were about 14, 15 other family members who became a Christian same night uh, oh. in a storefront Latino Pentecostal church in East New York, Brooklyn. Uh, and so uh, immediately after that conversion, I was so hungry to learn more about God. And I attended every gathering of my small church, the the youth ministry, the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the seniors ministry. I was at church six times a week uh, at every ministry I could find myself. And so being part of that church, uh, you know, there is great expression of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so I was receiving prophetic words very early on from guests visiting evangelists and preachers about the kind of ministry that they sense the Lord opening up for me in terms of preaching and such. Uh, and so uh, that kind of pulled, that pulled out of me the gifts and gave me the confidence to step into leadership roles. But I've been in so many different leadership roles from leading a, a 20 member youth ministry uh, to, uh, you know, going to college and then seminary and then being an assistant to a very large college and young adult ministry at a church called the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Uh, and then overseeing that young adult ministry and college ministry uh, for a number of years before joining New Life as a 28 year old to uh, oversee their small group ministry. Uh, and then uh, after being a small group ministry pastor for a few years, was invited to succeed a guy named Pete Scazzaro, uh, who I, I think he's been on the show, I believe. Um, yes, yeah. And so uh, that was me at about 33 years of age. They invited me to uh, succeed Pete. And, and uh, before, before you continue, man, yeah. you just kind of you just kind of skated by that, like a guy named Pete <laughs> just for people who are listening, who aren't familiar with him. So they know he's just not some random dude. He is just a random dude, but yeah. he's done some pretty important work that is really picking up steam. So who who is Pete? Yeah. Many people regard Pete as uh, in some sense, like a father of emotional health and mm. integrating emotional health and spirituality. He's written emotionally healthy leadership, emotionally healthy spirituality. His new book, The Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, which actually is coming out uh, later on this month in March. Uh, so, yeah, uh, having to succeed a guy like Pete was no small thing, especially as someone who was 33 years old, 34 years old. Uh, and so since that point, uh, going from small group leading to being an associate lead pastor to the last almost eight years, being the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church. Um. Well, thanks for walking through all that. You know, I know Mike was kind of asking about it. He's like, hey, man, who's Pete? But what what was that like? I mean, I know for a lot of people, they want to, uh, they, they, they kind of, they have their heroes in the faith, those that they listen to, they look up to, they read. Um, but, th you know, you don't always imagine, hey, I'm going to actually take over their ministry or they're going to hand it to me and succeed them. So what were, you know, some of the challenges that you walked through and then, you know, some of the learnings that you took from that process? Uh I have to say the process of succession and transition was um, I'm not sure you're going to get a better process than what we did. Uh, it was four years long. 
It was slow. It was prudent. We brought in outside people. Our elders were incredibly engaged. We had very clear metrics of what success was for us. It was in writing. Uh, we had timelines. Uh, we were kept accountable. Uh, so, I mean, you're not going to get a better process than what we did. The biggest challenge for me was as a young leader, having to discern when are the moments, especially uh, replacing an iconic leader like Pete, when are the moments when I need to be um, Moses to Jethro and one of the moments when I need to be salt, a uh, David to Saul. One of the moments when, you know, Jethro looks at Moses and says, what you're doing is not good. And he teaches him delegation. And Moses receives that wisdom. One of those moments that I need to receive wisdom from Pete because just his wisdom and experience. And one of those moments when I have to recognize this is Pete's anxiety, this is his issues, and I'm not going to wear your armor. Uh, having to uh, discern the difference between that has been very challenging, especially in the first couple of years. Now it's very clear to me, almost, a, you know, close to a decade into the role. But those first few years, that was probably the biggest challenge, especially, mm. uh, you know, succeeding someone who is uh, widely known and successful in the eyes of many. Mm. I can imagine that that was tough and probably shaped so much of even how you think about leadership today. But as you walked through kind of all the different roles you've had from 20 people in a ministry there in, in Brooklyn to where you are now, can you tell us about a pivotal moment? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's not just one, but is there a pivotal moment that you look back on it, you would say, man, this really changed uh, not only my leadership, but my life. Yeah, I think the biggest thing was when I came to New Life um, almost 13 years ago as a 28 year old. And for me, the, the, the moment was uh, being part of this culture. Uh, there was a recognition that there there is an incredible integration between soul and role. And as simple as that seems, it's often, um, it's easy to, for that to go over the heads of many leaders. Um, it's, it's so easy to focus on the role to the exclusion of our soul, the exclusion of our emotional health, mm -hmm. recognizing the ways of our families of origin and how that continually impacts our leadership uh, today. Uh, and so joining New Life and being under uh, Pete's leadership for a number of years, uh, that was probably the, the most pivotal moment of saying um, leadership must be integrated. Leadership must be about integrity, about intersection, about wrestling faithful, faithfully with uh, things in our interior world. There's, there must be this integration between soul and role. And I think that's what I was introduced to 13 years ago. And that's what, um, by God's grace, I've had to continue to cultivate. Um, that's probably prior to that, it was just, lead the people, preach good messages, mobilize people to action, all good things. But that moment when, when Pete said to me, and as, as I was being interviewed for the job as an assistant pastor, he said to me, the only way you'll get fired is if you don't take Sabbath. Mm. And that was so uh, strange. <laughs> to yeah, that's strange to me <laughs> hearing it now. <laughs> if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not, you're going to get fired as a pastor. Why? Because you will not have the kind of life to sustain your, the work you're doing for God. Um, so for me, that was a pivotal moment of mm. how I understand leadership. Man, thankful, thankful for you saying that. I know for a lot of young leaders who are listening 
they they kind of to aspire to their role, which are exactly what you're talking about. They they want the competency. They, they're going to train themselves in the competency side of things. Uh, but what you're saying right there is the soul piece. Man, we have to integrate those two things together. And oftentimes we neglect that at the sake of hustling towards mm-hmm. the role side of things mm-hmm. and just chasing after that. So let's say you know a young leader sitting in front of you and you're seeing that in their life. They're they're neglecting the soul, elevating the role over it what advice would you give to them of saying, Hey, here's how to actually focus on both of these together and an integration so that you can be sustained in your role as well. Um, I'm not trying to be, um, uh, ungracious when I say this, I think the best thing they could do is have, have these young leaders read every article on fallen pastors Mm-hmm. have them read about Ravi Zacharias, have them read about what's happening at Hillsong, have them read about what's happening with Bill Hybels, have them read about what's happened, have them read that mm-hmm. and say something went wrong here. Um, and um, don't let, uh, don't aspire to a role that your soul is not ready for, because mm-hmm. this is what will happen if it's not tended to. And that's not just for young leaders, that's for all leaders. Uh, but that's what I would probably would say to young leaders. Man, that'd be some tough reading right there. And it just, I mean, absolutely just hits you in the heart and it should. Um, So man, well, Rich, I know over, over the time of uh, your leadership roles, you've probably made a few mistakes along the way, but what would you, what would you say was your biggest leadership mistake getting started? And then how did that maybe set you up for success later down the road? Being a Knicks fan. Oh, <laughs> probably. Yeah, I was born into that, man. That's what my father's sin handed down to me. Um, oh, that's good. Uh, biggest mistake. I mean, it depends where. I mean, when I think about uh, my role as a lead pastor, stepping in as a 33 year old, um, I made very quick decisions out of anxiety. Uh, so whether it was hiring someone on staff, uh, that we just got to fill this position and get, get someone who's breathing in that, mo- in that space there. And, uh, knowing deep down inside, this person's probably not going to be the right. I, I, I never forgot. I'm, there was a, a significant administrative role that we needed to fill as I was becoming the lead pastor at new life. And I was so anxious about doing everything perfectly. You know, I feel like I had a lot of pressure that I was putting on myself. I'm taking over for a guy who's been here for 26 years. Everyone loves him. I'm really young. And I made a hire that I knew, I don't know if this is going to go right. Asked a few people, got some mixed reactions, knew in my spirit, something was wrong. And then I remember the first staff meeting when this person showed up and I just knew this was a bad decision. This was a bad decision. So that decision came really out of anxiety and quick decisions and uh, allowing my anxiety to, to get the best of me. Uh, has probably been the ongoing uh, reality uh, that I've had to wrestle with. Now, thankfully, um, I've learned that uh, it really takes a community of wisdom uh, or a wisdom community to help slow down that 
if if a position doesn't get filled tomorrow, it's probably not the end of the world. I recognize that there's some challenges that some positions need to be filled and all that. But getting just filling the position because it needs to be filled can lead to a lot of heartache, a lot of hurt. So that's one thing. I, I mean, plenty of things. I mean, uh, talking about preaching about massive issues without recognizing the power of words and the power of uh, how things can be misconstrued and not recognizing certain conversations often require particular spaces. Uh, so, so as not to uh, create reactivity and to create a space of contemplation, a space of curiosity and listening. There are times that I've preached stuff and I said stuff that it was not the proper venue on from the pulpit necessarily. Uh, and I got myself in, in trouble. So, uh, those are a couple of things that come to mind though. There are plenty of others, but those are a few. Is there an example that you can think of that you would be safe for you to still go home? Uh, Absolutely. I'm an open book in my church here, man. So, I mean, all the problems that and challenges are are, are very well known, you know, uh, a couple of years into being the lead pastor at new life. uh, And in light of, of what was happening out of Ferguson in light of what was happening with uh, Michael Brown. And, you know, uh, I got up and, um, and started preaching about matters of race, uh, with specificity, with clarity. And I, I recognized, um, you know, I remember one week preaching on individual racial prejudice. And, uh, I said, everyone has individual racial prejudice and the congregation, they love me that Sunday. And then the next week I said, now we're going to talk about institutional racism, structural sin and how it, and, and in the sermon, I I was pretty flippant with some of the words that I used. I was I was I was trying to uh, call for humor when humor wasn't needed in that moment. Mm. Uh, I would say things like, you know, white supremacy is this, this, this. So if you're white, don't email me, you know. And mm, and, and and so what began to happen is some white people started emailing other pastors. And, uh, you know, voicing their displeasure. And when I said, Hey, why didn't you email me? They said, well, you said, don't email me. You said, no, yeah. Uh, and I said, well, uh, they, so I, I recognize that some conversations like now to this day, I mean, it, it, preaching on whether it's racism, white supremacy, whatever it is, uh, I'm still doing it, but I do recognize I'm a pastor. I'm not a professor. I'm not someone who doesn't have a flock and they could say whatever they want on social media. I'm a pastor of a church with 75 nations represented Mm -hmm. in a very complicated area in New York City. Uh, And so I must recognize certain conversations require particular spaces in order to shepherd people well. Mm, That's good, man. Rich, what book uh, do you wish someone gave you when you were when you were just starting to leave, man? You know, um, when I think about that question on, on many levels, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge reader and I had plenty of mentors from early on in my life. My grandfather being the first one who was handing me books left and right as a 19 year old. He was just giving me uh, books. Uh, and uh, and so I think I from the inception of my faith journey. I was exposed to many books. There's probably one book that comes to mind by a guy named Ed Friedman. I'm a, I'm a big student of family systems theory 
and the ways that um, that theory plays itself out in congregations. Uh, he wrote a book called Generation to Generation and then a more popular book called Failure of Nerve, uh, in which he addresses matters of family systems theory, differentiation, uh, the ways that our families of origin impact our leadership today. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll, that's, that's probably one that comes to mind, uh, although I think um, I have the great privilege and I'm so grateful for all the gifts of getting amazing books early on that I don't feel that I was deprived of that. I think what I was deprived of or not necessarily deprived of, I just wasn't ready for it was experiences. Mm. But I think I had a lot of really good access to some of the best books out there. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you just said that because it's, uh, you know, trying to prepare for what's next or whatever that might be. You can read as much as you want. But just as you said, there's so much of it that in, it, just intellect alone is not going to help you when it comes to game time. Yeah, so exactly right. how so there's you know, there's people who are wanting to aspire to to maybe it's the next leadership role or whatever that might be. It's maybe it's just a new setting. Um what, what would you say to someone, uh, uh, the balance of reading versus experience and maybe in your, mm. maybe even in your experiences, how can you get that experience when it, sometimes it doesn't seem available? Uh, with the experience thing, uh, just find yourself among people for enough time and you will come across, uh, lots of things to help you in your experience, conflicts, disagreements, criticism. So part of it is just, this is the human story. And this is what it means to be in community. We are going to bump up against particular challenges. Uh, just give it enough time. You're going to find yourself doing that. Uh, in terms of holding those two together, I think it was Larry Osborne who, who wrote a book some years ago um, in, in which he talked about two tracks of, of learning. One being, uh, I need to know uh, and, and, and I need to grow, need to know and need to grow. Need to know is essentially, I'm going to, I'm reading this stuff, whether I'm experiencing it or not, um, whether it's theology, whether it's uh, social sciences, whether it's like, psych- I'm just reading to help me grow, help me know important things. And then there's help the need to grow moments where I'm stuck now. And now I need a particular, need particular wisdom Uh, That's been a helpful way to frame it. I think we all need areas of knowledge uh, for just general good leadership. Mm -hmm. And then we come across a wall, we come across a conflict, we come across a very difficult situation in which we need to open ourselves up, not just to get head knowledge, but to navigate with wisdom intact uh, the issue that's before us. So that's one of the ways that I try to think through it. That's a helpful way to think about it. Well, going into leadership, uh, we all kind of have some type of idea of what it's going to be. And we also come in with, with, with misconceptions. So what was maybe your biggest misconception when it comes to leadership? I have a list here. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and here's, here's the challenge. Um, the list that I have is, are the misconceptions that I had early on that still show up from time to time. Hmm. Um, I, uh, in my congregation, 2020 was very difficult, uh, like most congregations in the United States. Uh, political hostility, racial injustice, economic upheaval, public health hmm. crisis. Uh, it led to lots of conflicts in the congregation that I lead. 
And uh, I've had to, on a subterranean level, uh, those messages and misconceptions that I had at the very beginning kept surfacing again mm. as I was working through conflicts and trying to discern how do we move forward uh, through delicate issues. And so what are some of those misconceptions? Here's, here's one. People disagreeing with me means I'm a bad leader. That's a misconception that I've had. Uh, and that's that's what I felt early on. And that's what I felt last week. Uh, if we're not on the same page, me and the congregation, me and those I'm leading, I'm doing something wrong as a leader. That's another misconception. If we're not on the same page, it, it's it's me. Uh, another misconception, I'm causing division by bringing up delicate issues. Uh, that's a misconception. Uh, I, I need you to like me for me to be okay. I need you to agree with me for me to be okay. Uh, people who leave lead my leadership uh, expose deficiencies in me. These are misconceptions that I had as a 22 year old leading in Brooklyn and as a 41 year old, almost 42 year old next uh, month leading in Queens. Uh, so whether it's leading 20 people or leading 2000 people, these are these misconceptions that run so deep. Hmm. Uh, and unless I'm able to name those misconceptions and in the way of Jesus, uh, open myself up to a different script, a different message that's shaped by the gospel. Um, I'm going to find myself continually repeating these things. So it's not that these misconceptions, uh, I don't have, I still have them. Uh, but I'm trying to become aware of the ways that these misconceptions shape the way I see myself and shape the way I lead others. Rich, I think a lot of young leaders, and I know I have in the beginning of my leadership and ministry and now struggle with those misconceptions. How for young leaders listening who are there in the beginning and they're probably doing stuff that a lot of people might disagree with. How do you leave people who disagree with you? You know what I mean? Like you talked yeah. about kind of replacing that script. How, how do you get over that hump in your own heart of loving people and leading them when you know they disagree with you. Some of them are disagreeing with you, disagreeing with you in a really public kind of oppositional way. Others are humble about it, but you know, deep down, they don't think what you're doing is the best thing to do. How do you still continue to lead them? Yeah. Uh, and Mike, that's a great question. And I think, um, we, we could tease that out in so many different ways in, in light of, you know, there's a difference between people who publicly disagree and do so in ways that are condescending and not helpful. And then others who maybe privately disagree or even publicly, but it's done in a winsome um, way where they want true understanding. Uh, but I think the deeper issue uh, that transcends both of those categories is our ability to grow in self-differentiation which comes out of family systems theory and self-differentiation at its core is about remaining close to myself and remaining close to others, especially in times of high anxiety and resisting the polar opposite pull of either cutting people off or finding ourselves enmeshed in them. Hmm. Uh, in order to do that, that takes such a level of reflection and such a level of a prayerfulness such a level of examining the interior messages that often uh, filter, you know, are the filters through which we see the world. It, it requires a level of interior examination that most people, regardless of the age, don't give themselves to. Mm. And so how do I leave people disagree with me? 
by first attending to what's happening inside of me. Uh, the past two weeks, I've had three or four very difficult conversations with people who are some pillars in our church who disagree with how I see things related to race, how I see things related to the gospel. And in order to be present to them, even though they disagree, um, I've had to do a lot of my own interior work to prepare myself for that. Hmm. But it's also important to name, like some people think that disagreement means division. And so whenever there's a disagreement, they have no emotional capacity to stay connected. Hmm. So part of it is, I think, reframing. What do we mean when we say disagreement? And what do we mean when we say division? Uh, for some people to disagree with the next person means that these are grounds to cut off yeah. as opposed to this is what makes us a human community uh, that we're going to have various disagreements. So how we frame disagreements, I think, is important in addition to the interior work that we have to do. That's so good, man. Well, you talk about the interior work and, and that's one of the things you talk about in your book, uh, The Deeply Formed Life. So you share five foundational values for that life. And uh, so just to whet people's appetite to go read the book. Uh, so you talk about contemplative rhythms, uh, racial reconciliation, interior examination, which you just mentioned, sexual wholeness and missional presence. And uh, and I'm sure you've seen this, Rich. There's been an increase of books on some of those topics, spiritual rhythms, emotional health, uh, race, sexuality. But why did you decide to address those together in one book? Yeah, I did it primarily because those five values flow out of our local church. Those are the five values of our local church and how we've tried to shape people in the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Uh, we use different language. We call it monastic, multiracial, emotional health, marriage to Christ and missional. I wanted to offer language that was more accessible and not as, um, uh, you know, uh, focused on just our, our, our local community. Uh, and so I did it number one, because these are the values of our congregation. Number two, I did it out of pastoral concern because I got so many questions from people in our church going, what do you mean when you say racism? What do you mean when you say sexuality and the gospel? What do you mean when you say this? I got so many questions. I thought, I think I need to address this. And so uh, a, a big portion of why I wrote the book was out of pastoral concern, mm. much like Eugene Peterson translated, uh, paraphrased the message, uh, you know, the Bible there. Um, that came out of pastoral concern for Peterson. He wanted his people to understand what Paul was saying. And one thing led to the next and he translated the entire Bible or paraphrased the entire Bible. For me, it was very similar. I wanted my people to understand what our values were. But thirdly, I wrote it because quite frankly, um, uh, I believe this is, I was trying to offer an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation for our generation. Hmm. And, um, and so instead of going down the road of formational compartmentalization, in which we segment these values. I wanted to offer a framework, a paradigm, uh, and yes, it's ambitious in saying, I think we need to hold these things together if we're gonna be faithful in the particular generational, social and cultural moment we find ourselves in. Yeah. Well, I think as I was thinking, I was reading your book and I was thinking through those five different areas and it, it is ambitious, uh, but I think you, I could see as I was reading it, the, the kind of underlying need uh, in as we, as we kind of scan the surface of those different topics. And one of the things you said in the intro of your book 
uh, and I was telling Chandler this, you, you said this phrase that it literally made me stop reading and think. You said, uh, and hopefully you remember that you wrote this. Uh, you, said, you said, we have often been discipled into superficiality. Yeah. Man, I literally just stopped and just had to think about that for a minute. And so what did you mean by that? And uh, yeah, what, what, what did you mean by that? We've been discipled into superficiality. Yeah, uh, I meant a few things by that. The first thing I think I meant was um, so much of what we do as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is is often uh, focused on the surface. And so whether it is simply behavior modification, whether it is simply addressing some of the larger external uh, challenges of our world uh, without recognizing the ways that we have contributed uh, or benefit from the various problems that we find. So it's often a very other centered way of, or in surface centered way of engaging the world and trying to follow Jesus. Uh, additionally, uh, to be discipled into superficiality means that the way we try to address some of the more complicated problems must happen, uh, beneath the surface more than just sociological analysis, more than just good theology, uh, you can have good theology and good sociological analysis, but still not have a life that is being marked and shaped by the gospel of grace, marked and shaped by compassion, uh, marked and shaped by um, uh, uh, non-dualistic thinking, is moving beyond either or black and white thinking. Uh, that is superficiality for me. And it's often the case that we are discipled into it so that when we're talking about matters like race and racism, it's so easy to look at it in very uh, overly simplistic ways mm. without recognizing the multiple layers that are at work in addressing something as massive as that. Mm. Uh, but it takes time to do that. And because of the pace that we live and the ways that we compartmentalize our, our, compartmentalize our lives, for me, that is uh, an expression of being discipled into superficiality. Mm. <laughs> well, if you guys have not had a chance to pick up a copy of the deeply formal life, just go ahead and hit pause right now, head on over to iTunes and get a copy. It's, it's going to be great for you uh, to check out. Well, let's move to the quick hitter questions here, Rich. And these are going to be short one minute answers. And we'll get started with this one. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office, all that good stuff? Well, uh, in COVID world, uh, yep. this is my office. So I get out of bed, I sit on the chair. I'm in my office in, in 10 seconds. So uh, uh, pre-COVID, so, so I say that just the last year has been very yeah. uh, dizzying. I have not been to the office only on Sundays when I have to, we do our live, oh, wow. live services. So everything else has been. And real quick, are you guys, uh, your church, you're not meeting in person. You're still fully online, correct? Not in person. We had a, a stint in the late summer and fall where every, the numbers were down significantly. And we gathered for maybe a couple of months in a very limited capacity, about a hundred people uh, in our service. Um, but then the numbers started going up again and yeah. we've been doing everything remotely. Uh, but pre COVID and what I envision, it'll probably change uh, when everything comes back to some normalcy still uh, I'm, I'm up in the morning. Uh, depends if I was watching a Knicks game the night before, but <laughs> typically uh, I am up around uh, six 30 um, 
a little before, about an hour before the kids usually wake up. Uh, and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, that's usually the time when I'm either uh, journaling, reading, uh, praying, uh, making, you know, pot, a cup of coffee. Uh, and then I'm usually, depending on what's happening, I'm in the office usually three days a week plus Sunday. Uh, but that's, I think those are the two things, right? What time do I wake up office? Anything else there? That's that's it. Okay. You're good. And I'm <laughs> I'm in bed typically between 10:30 and 11 on most nights. Nice. Rich, what's your favorite personality test? Um, I, I haven't done a lot. I mean, of course there's like Myers-Briggs stuff. Uh, I, I know the Enneagram doesn't necessarily is not considered a traditional kind of personality test, but if that was factored into that, mm. uh, we have done a lot of work on the Enneagram at new life, helping to recognize the false self and the shadow self and, uh, the areas that still need healing. So, uh, there's an assessment called the Berkman, which, uh, we've used, uh, at our church, that has been really helpful, but uh, probably the Enneagram, although a purist would say it's not a personality test, but <laughs> something related to our motivations. Well, and I know this might violate some of the rules of Enneagram in terms of how it originally was used, but what's your Enneagram number? Uh, seven. 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 You're a seven. Seven. So, which is why part of the reason why I was able to write about five values in one book, I think part of that is the sevenness where I'm very distracted. I want... Uh, yeah, I want to, I want to be in everything. Uh, and so I'm in, I'm in seven books at a different time because I want to glean as much as I can. So part of that is, I think the seven manifesting in some way. I have seven envy, by the way. <laughs> Y'all are just the fun ones, man. Like, I, don't, fun, man. I, I don't know if we covered this last time. What's your Enneagram number? I'm a nine, bro. I'm just nine. out here making peace. man. <laughs> Nobody's inviting me to the party, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm walking in. Uh, you know, there was a book that someone said, uh, you know, Enneagram sevens, usually they go to the supermarket and they come out with, uh, you know, the gumball machine, 25 cents in the gumball machine. They're always looking for something to play that. And that's literally me. My wife has told me to stop that. But I'm like, let me get, the let me get the gumball before I leave the supermarket. So. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, Rich, what's an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? Um... I, I guess on some level, it's unusual in that I, when I talk to a lot of pastors, uh, many are not doing it, but um, I stopped my work for 24 hours since Sabbath. Um, and so for many, it is an unusual habit. 6 p.m. on Sunday, on Friday night to 6 p.m. on Saturday night. I am not doing any work, no sermons, no counseling, no phone calls, no emails. Um, you wouldn't think I'm a pastor of a church. Uh, and so... <laughs> Uh, that is probably one of the unusual habits that have significant. I can't imagine my life without doing that on a week to week yeah. basis. And I've been doing it for about 12 years now. Wow. You know, some people, when they hear that, they're like, man, I'm normally cranking out, finishing that sermon late Friday into Saturday. So is there just a rhythm in your, in your preaching, uh, kind of sermon prep that you're getting ready to make sure that that window's clear? Oh yeah. Uh, a number of years ago, I read a book called The Four Pages of a Sermon, a really wonderful book, but I forgot the author, his name right now, but he was helping me to break up the, the sermon. I don't know how people get up on a Thursday or Friday and write the sermon. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to piece it together on a regular basis. So for me, by, fr by Friday at 3 p.m., I'm usually done with about 80 to 90 percent of the sermon. 
uh, uh, by 6 p.m. It's, you know, about 80, 90 percent or so. I don't pick it up until the kids go to bed on Saturday night and probably spend another two hours with. OK. Uh, and or three hours, depending on if things need to be changed. But uh, but that's the thrust for me. By by 3 p.m. on Friday, I'm usually done with about 80 to 90 percent of it. Well, I got to preach on Sunday and today is Thursday. Uh, so I, I got a lot of work to do. That's great. Hey, what's your favorite app on your phone? Ah, uh, um, I would probably say, uh, probably Pandora, uh, just music. I love music, mm. uh, love hip hop. Um, so there's always music playing. That's, uh, that's probably one. And then two, I mean, anyone who knows me, they, they know I'm really engaged on, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I love connecting. I've connected. I've, I've, so, I've made so many friends, like legitimate friends over the past decade through Twitter, uh, which is one of the reasons I love it. And I get to test out some ideas uh, for sermons and books and things like that. So I'd say those two things there. <laughs> Well, what has been the best book you've read in the past six months? Oh, so many books. Uh, I, I'd say the book that I've read because it's fresh in my mind in the past month has been a book by a guy named Craig Barnes, who was, a, I think, the, the president of Princeton Seminary. He wrote a book called The Pastor as Minor Prophet. The Pastor as Minor Prophet. Uh, it's probably 100 pages, 120 pages. I, there's certain books that you just read and you know, this person is a sage. This person is Obi-Wan Kenobi. This person is like, <laughs> they've got it down. When I read that book, I'm like, I'm being mentored by a, a Jedi master uh, mm. in pastoring. So that's probably the pastor as minor prophet. Mm. Man, what uh, one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? I'll tell that person what, our executive pastor said to me a number of years ago, uh, she said to me, Rich, don't forget, you get to fail. Mm -hmm. You get to make mistakes. And uh, when she said that, it changed the way I led. Mm. Why was that so powerful for you? because it gave me permission to not be perfect. It gave me permission, which in turn would give me permission to risk, give me permission to dream. Um, you know, some people, some people don't need that permission. Some people are going to, they recognize that and they're going to dream and innovate and make mistakes along the way. Others are paralyzed by fear of making mistakes. Um, that I fall into that category. So hearing someone say, you get to make mistakes, you get to fail, was really significant for me to step out and risk and dream and innovate and uh, imagine what leadership in a congregation could be in this generation. Mm, that's good. That's great advice. Well, Rich, thanks for joining us on the podcast today and sharing about your leadership journey. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. If it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review to help other leaders like yourself find the podcast. And we'll see you next week.